You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers, and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland. Hello, and welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast series. Today, we're going to look at a recent decision of the Irish High Court, the case of Buttermer and Oakfield Supermarkets Limited. The case itself is quite detailed, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in short, the case addresses two to three main points. Firstly, do employers have to apply fair procedures when dismissing an employee during probation? Secondly, can an employer contract out of its own disciplinary procedure when dealing with employees who are on probation? And thirdly, perhaps more generally, what does it look like for an employee when an employment injunction all goes horribly wrong? And why do employees go to the High Court rather than going to the WRC? But before we get to any of that, let's have a look at what else has been happening in the employment law world since our last podcast. Many of you will recall the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provisions Act that was passed into law last January. This is the legislation that combined both the proposed right to request remote working and the various provisions of the Work-Life Balance Directive. The Act was passed in January, but many of the key provisions were put on hold until later stages in the year. Since our last recording, the provisions dealing with the five days of unpaid medical leave have now been signed in with effect from the 5th of July. On the other hand, the provisions dealing with paid domestic violence leave are still not yet implemented and are unlikely to be implemented before the end of the year. What we have noticed, however, is an increasing number of clients who are preparing policies to address the issue of domestic violence for their employees. Finally, the most important provision within the legislation, namely the right to request remote working, is still on hold, pending publication of a code of practice from the WRC on how to deal with these requests. As some of you will know, my own view is that this legislation on this particular aspect is academic, because at this point, Every employer in the country has already worked out what its hybrid working policy is and how to deal with the right to request remote working. The other main development since our last podcast is in relation to the Pay Transparency Directive. That was eventually finalised in June last at EU level and member states now have up to three years to 2026 to implement this international law. The main provisions of the directive, just to summarise them, are as follows. Firstly, employees will now have a new right to request pay information in regard to their role or their pay grade. Employers will be required to provide information on pay ranges when publishing job vacancies. Employers will no longer be entitled to restrict or prohibit employees from sharing salary information or for asking for salary information, though I'm not sure in practice to what extent that ever really did happen. Employees will also have a right to seek compensation where their rights under the legislation have been breached. And probably the most significant part of the Pay Transparency Directive is the whole concept of pay audits. Where an employer has a gender pay gap of more than 5%, the employer will have to be able to justify that by reason of external factors in the marketplace. If it can't justify it, and the actual process of justifying it comes down to reaching agreement with the employer representatives, which means in practice that the representatives will always refuse to accept the justification, the employer must conduct a pay audit. And I think that's where employers are going to face a significant amount of additional burden and admin 
when it comes to dealing with this process in due course. Obviously, we're a bit away from any sort of draft legislation at this stage, but we will keep an eye on this and we'll keep you updated. You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. Let's turn now to the case review itself. This is the case of Buttermer and Oak Fuel Supermarkets, a decision from the High Court from February last. There's a significant amount of detail in the background to this case, so let me try and summarise it as follows. Ms. Buttermer joined the employer fuel station as a supervisor on the 7th of March 2022. She joined on the basis that if everything worked out well, within four weeks she would be promoted to store manager. However, within two weeks, on the 24th of March, one of her colleagues had made a formal complaint against her, that she had used foul and inappropriate language in the workplace and had been making inappropriate comments about some of her colleagues behind their backs. The employer engaged an independent HR consultant who initiated an investigation under the company's bullying and harassment procedure in early April. Notwithstanding this, and maybe because the employee had in effect been carrying out the role of manager from day one, the employer nonetheless went ahead and promoted her to store manager on the 25th of April. However, within three weeks of that date, a second employee had raised a new set of allegations against her, along the lines of the first set. This led to a meeting between the employee and her manager on the 17th of May, at which point she was dismissed. Now, there's significant conflict of evidence in the case as to what exactly happened on the day, but it really comes down to the employer claiming that she was dismissed for failure to pass her probation and the employee claiming that she was dismissed by reason of allegations of misconduct that had been made against her. Surprisingly, however, the employer did offer her an alternative role as a trainee manager in one of the other stores. And on the 19th of May, the employer contacted her to see if she would be returning to work. The employer, I suppose, got its answer the very next day when the employee solicitor wrote to the employer claiming breach of her right to fair procedures and threatening a high court injunction to restrain the dismissal. We'll take a look at what the employee's exact case was in a moment, but let's just pause for a second what a high court injunction is and why employees go for them. Where an employee is dismissed, they usually have two main options open to them as to how they challenge it. They can bring a regular unfair dismissal claim under the Unfair Dismissals Act to the WRC, or alternatively, they can bring a wrongful dismissal claim to the High Court. A wrongful dismissal claim is basically a breach of contract claim, but the key strategic advantage of bringing a High Court wrongful dismissal claim is that the employee can look as part of a preliminary application for an injunction to restrain the employer from going ahead with the dismissal. So it's a very immediate remedy. And usually the application includes an order to require the employer to pay salary until the trial of the action. Now, remember, an injunction application is a preliminary application to preserve the status quo until the trial. The trial happens maybe 9 to 12 months away. So any employer that is faced with the prospect of an order to pay salary for the next 9 to 12 months to then face into a trial that they may or may not win is naturally going to be a lot more accommodating or reasonable when it comes to any sort of settlement negotiations now. And that's the main reason any employee ever goes to the High Court for an injunction. It's to create that immediate leverage so that they can put themselves in the best position to negotiate their exit or negotiate the settlement with the employer now. And the vast majority of these cases, and by that I mean easily 99% of them, are settled within a number of weeks of the dismissal or of the injunction application. 
very few ever get to a full trial. So that in a way answers the second part of the question. Why would an employee go for a high court injunction rather than an unfair dismissal claim? Often it's because the employee doesn't have the requisite one year service to bring a claim for unfair dismissal. So a high court action may be their only option. However, more typically, it's because the employee wants to create that immediate leverage and strategy in order to put themselves in the best position to negotiate their exit. Turning back now to Ms. Buttermer's case, usually where an employee looks for a high court injunction, one of the key arguments is because their right to fair procedures was breached, and that the employee didn't get the benefit of fair procedures and how the employer went about it. And that was no different here. Ms. Buttermer argued that allegations of misconduct had been raised against her. Where an employer is dealing with allegations of misconduct, it triggers the employee's right to fair procedures and how the employer goes about investigating it. And in this case, in the course of the investigation, before any conclusions were reached and before she was giving any opportunity to answer the allegations against her, on the 17th of May, she was summoned to a meeting and dismissed at that point. On that basis, she was seeking an order to prevent the employer from proceeding with the dismissal, to prevent the employer from replacing her, and more importantly, to require the employer to pay her salary pending trial. That last part obviously is the leverage for her settlement. Let's have a look at the employer's case, or rather the employer's response to Ms. Buttermer's case. The employer argued that fair procedures only apply where an employee is being investigated for misconduct. And in this case, it claimed she hadn't been dismissed for misconduct. She was dismissed simply for failing to pass her probation. The employer argued this on two points. Firstly, the decision to dismiss her was not in any way based on the initial allegations against her, but broader performance concerns that had come up over the period of her employment. And secondly, even if the allegations that were raised against her did form part of the basis of her dismissal, they were issues of poor performance as opposed to misconduct. Secondly, the employer argued that its own disciplinary procedure did not apply to her dismissal because its procedure expressly carved out probationary employees. In other words, the procedure was very clear. It only applied to employees that had passed their probation. It probably is taking it a step further to suggest on that basis that that means the employee isn't entitled to any fair procedures whatsoever. And we'll see in a moment what the court made of that. Thirdly, and this is more of a technical legal point, they argued that the balance of convenience, which is part of the test a court will follow in assessing whether or not to grant an injunction, did not favour granting the order in this case. Let's have a look then at what the judge made of all of this. The judge started by going through the main principles that a court has to look at in deciding whether or not to grant an injunction. And it went back over some of the seminal case law in this area, referring in particular to the case of Merck Sharp and Dome versus Clonmel Healthcare, a decision from the Supreme Court in 2019. And the judge explained that, first of all, the court has to be satisfied that there is a fair issue to be tried. And that's the phrase we use in the case law. But in reality, what it means is that the employee has a decent case or a good chance of winning. In fact, the case law around employment injunctions has evolved over the years to the point now where the employee has to show that they have a strong case that they are likely to succeed at trial. If the employee can establish that they have a strong case that they're likely to succeed, well then the court will consider the balance of convenience. 
And the balance of convenience, I suppose, really comes down to the court assessing which of the two scenarios involves the lowest risk of injustice to the parties. Is it the case of granting the order and putting the employer under restrictions, which, if at trial the employer ultimately wins, would prove to have been unfair? Or is it alternatively not granting the order and allowing the employee to be dismissed, allowing the employee to go pending trial without any salary in circumstances where the employee could win a trial, and then it will turn out that he or she should have been paid in the meantime. And the court has to decide which of those two scenarios involves the greatest degree of injustice to the parties. In deciding this, the court will in turn look at the issue of whether or not damages are an adequate remedy at trial. And here, really what the court is talking about is, if the employee wins and no order has been granted, will compensation at the trial stage be sufficient to make up the damage that they have suffered. If the court thinks that a financial award will recompense the employee and that covers the damage, well then the order may not be necessary. But if the court feels that the order is necessary in order not just to prevent the financial loss, but perhaps also to prevent damage to the employee's reputation, which is obviously much harder to repair, well then the court might conclude the order should be granted, even if there is some degree of injustice on the employer in having the order in place in the meantime. The court then took those principles and applied it to the defence the employer was running here. First of all, on the employer's position that she had been dismissed for failing to pass the probation rather than misconduct, the court 100% agreed that where an employer is dismissing an employee for poor performance during probation, the employer does not have to apply fair procedures. And if I can quote from the judgment, just so you can see what exactly the judge was getting at, what the judge said was as follows. The authorities are clear that an employee may be let go during her probationary period for any reason, including poor performance, or no reason without any obligation to afford fair procedures. And the court then separately referred to an earlier Court of Appeal decision, which we had covered in another podcast, Oversee Technology. Quoting from that, There is no suggestion that the principles of natural justice must be applied where an employer terminates the employment contract of an employee on the grounds of poor performance. However, and again I'm quoting from the judge here, the judge goes on to say, however, it is equally clear as a matter of general principle that while at common law an employer is free to dismiss an employee for any reason or no reason, where the dismissal or termination is for misconduct, the employer is obliged to comply with fair procedures. And this is the critical difference here, that if misconduct is the basis of the dismissal, well then the right to fair procedures are triggered. If misconduct isn't part of the reason, and it could be per performance, it could be no reason, well then the employer doesn't have to follow fair procedures if during probation. There is a distinction in practice between per performance and misconduct. Per performance could be that the employee is trying their best, but they're just not particularly good at the job, or they're not up to the standard. Whereas misconduct goes one step further, it impacts on the degree to which an employee may be trusted or it reflects on the employee's integrity and honesty. And that's why the courts take such a different approach to poor performance as opposed to misconduct, because misconduct does impact on one's reputation. Applying that then to the facts at hand, the court concluded that Ms. Buttermer clearly had been dismissed for misconduct. The court wasn't accepting any argument that she had been dismissed merely for failing to meet her probationary standards. In the court's view, there was no evidence whatsoever of ordinary performance discussions, 
such as you might see around an employee who fails to pass to probation. Likewise, it was clear that the meeting of the 17th of May had been a discussion in relation to both the allegations against her in the bullying and harassment investigation and also broader performance concerns. Thirdly, even the manner in which the employer was investigating the allegations, treating them as a matter under the company's disciplinary procedure and also its bullying and harassment procedure, indicated the company saw it as more than just a performance issue. It was an issue of misconduct. On that basis, the court felt that she was entitled to the benefit of fair procedures and fair procedures had not been applied in the manner in which she was dismissed. The court also made the point, and I think this is worth taking a look at, that even where the reason stated by the employer is poor performance, if it's obvious on the evidence that she has been dismissed for misconduct, that the employee's rights to fair procedures are triggered. The court then dealt with the employer's second line of defence, namely that because their disciplinary procedure didn't apply to probationary employees, they didn't have to give her the benefit of fair procedures. The court knocked this point on the head pretty quickly as well. The court explained that all this clause does is allow the employer to disapply its own particular disciplinary procedure, but that doesn't in any way allow it to override the common law or constitutional right to fair procedures. Again, it came back to the main point. If the employer is dealing with an allegation of misconduct, irrespective of whether the employee is in probation or not, the employer has to give the employee the benefit of fair procedures. So the court's comment on this point was as follows. Put simply, there is a strong case that the common law and the constitution requires fair procedures where a termination is for reasons of misconduct. All that is contract out of is the application of the company's standard disciplinary procedure, not these common law or constitutional principles. That point isn't that surprising really, but I think it's the first time we've seen that expressly addressed in a court decision. So it is useful to have it there for employers. So at this point, you probably like me when I was reading the judgment assumed that the employee was home and dry in her application for an injunction, but it's not over yet. All the employee has done at this stage is established that she has a strong case that she's likely to succeed at trial. The employee then has to satisfy the balance of convenience test. So the judge looked at that. The judge went back over some of the main factors that a court has to consider in determining the balance of convenience. The balance of convenience is the point we discussed before. The assessment the court has to reach as to which version of events will cause the least injustice on the parties. He talked about the adequacy of damages. He noted the point around the loss of salary for the employee and how the case though over the years had gone from it being granted in exceptional circumstances only to it now becoming a well-established practice that if an employee does obtain a high court order, that it will almost always involve an order to require the employer to pay the salary until the trial. In this case, the judge noted that an offer of alternative employment had been made to her, which she could have accepted without any impact on her underlying claim, and that that had to be considered as part of this also. The judge also talked about the relationship of trust and confidence and how it clearly had broken down between the parties in this case and what impact that might then have on the parties if an order required the employer to take her back. Finally, the court talked about the probationary period and the fact that even if the employer is required to take her back under the employer's contract, it is still free to terminate her on one week's notice. So having taken all of those factors into account, the court concluded that it would not be appropriate to order the employer to retain her. On the salary point in particular, the court explained that even if the employee 
wins that trial, what that gives her is a right to seek compensation for the salary she would have lost. But the salary she would have lost, if she hadn't been dismissed, was always subject to the employer's right to dismiss her on one week's notice. So in essence, the most she can claim for is one week's salary. The court felt, therefore, it would have been very unfair in the employer to require it to pay salary for six, nine, twelve months pending a trial in circumstances where it would have been entitled at any point to simply terminate her on one week's notice. On that basis, the order for salary was denied. In explaining this further, the court felt that the employee had not provided sufficient evidence of the hardship she would suffer if she didn't receive her salary in the meantime. My own view, that was a little bit harsh because I think it's probably self-evident what impact it would have on the employee. And I think if anything, the employee probably just assumed it was pretty obvious and didn't provide enough evidence on this point. Nonetheless, it's a lesson for employees in how they go about these cases and equally something employers can focus on in defending these cases. So in the court's view, the balance of convenience did not justify granting the order to restrain the employer from dismissing her or to require the employer to pay her salary pending trial. We're obviously not involved in this case, so I don't know what happened next, but I suspect that's any one of the following three things. Either the employee will proceed with the trial, which I think is very unlikely because the most she in theory is going to win at this stage is one week's salary and against the costs of a high court claim that makes no sense. Secondly, the employee could withdraw the claim. However, I think that will put her in a difficult position as regards costs with the employer because it will expect to have its costs now covered because she withdrew the claim. And then thirdly, and perhaps most likely, the case will be settled between the parties. Could be that it'll be settled on the basis that each side pays their own costs or something like that. In my experience, many of these cases are settled and this one probably will be no different. You can see how the employee went about this case with a very clear strategy, but it was all based on her obtaining the high court order to maintain the salary. In this case, the judgment went against her and it turns her negotiating position into something very different in any settlement discussions that come out of this. So, to wrap up on today's discussion, those of you who follow this series will know we always like to ask, what does this mean for you as employers in Ireland? Well, there's a, a few different things we can learn from this judgment. Firstly, we now have a much better understanding of why employees choose to go for a high court injunction rather than going to the WRC with a more typical unfair dismissal claim. We also now have a window into what it looks like when it all goes horribly wrong for an employee. And I have to say the judgment is probably a little bit of a surprise for both employees and employers. On very similar facts in many other cases, the employees probably would have obtained the order and it would have been settled to the employee's satisfaction. Nonetheless, it is a very clear warning to employees that that's by no means guaranteed. So in that respect, it's a very useful judgment for employers as well, because it can be used in settlement discussions where employers and employees are discussing these matters before you even get to the stage of a high court injunction application being made. Looking at the legal issues, it's a very clear, useful judgment, repeating again the point from the overseas technology case, that if an employee is being dismissed during probation, and if the employee is being dismissed for any reason other than misconduct, that the employer doesn't have to follow fair procedures. Furthermore, the case adds to the helpful line of case law in regard to no-fault terminations and helps again with the point that an employer can actually dismiss an employee for no reason at all as a matter of contract, and in those circumstances doesn't have to apply fair procedures, which in turn helps manage the injunction risk. 
This is something that we have successfully used increasingly in recent years for employers and is definitely something that's on the rise. The judgment overall, however, is at odds with the line of case law coming from the Labour Court, which still maintains the position that even where an employee is being dismissed during probation for performance-related reasons as opposed to misconduct, that the employee should get the benefit of fair procedures. I don't quite understand how the Labour Court and the High Court can be so different on this position, but obviously if there was ever an appeal from the Labour Court on a point of law to the High Court, the High Court's line of case law is going to prevail on this point. Finally, it addresses the point around disciplinary procedures that carve out employees that are on probation. We now have a very clear judgment to the effect that those employees, if being dismissed or investigated for misconduct-related reasons, still receive the benefit of fair procedures. It's just the particular employer's disciplinary procedure that won't be applied. Overall, it's a really useful judgment for employers. There's a lot in that we can learn, and we'll keep an eye on any further cases that build on this one. That's it for today's discussion. Our next podcast is going to look at the issue of suspension and a recent High Court decision on this issue. So please join us for that. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, dot done at matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.